Welcome everybody to episode 45 of the Sock Takes Pod. We've got a three-man panel tonight. I'm your host, Kevin Johnston. I'm joined by one of our regulars, Sock staff writer, the doctor of D2, Mr. Nipun Chopra. How's it going, Nipun? You can't say doctor of D2 and then say Mr. Nipun Chopra. <laughs> Just one or the other? <laughs> yeah, you got. If you're gonna say Doctor of D two, you got to go True. with Doctor of Intro. Come on, dude. Yeah, this I, I got to sharp, sharpen that intro up. Huh? This is the sort of stuff that leads to sock takes being the laughing stock of soccer Twitter. This is the yeah. sort of stuff, KJ. I would keep I'm telling right. you, you gotta gotta work harder. We gotta really put in our effort <laughs> so that you know we start being taken seriously. <laughs> I'm great, KJ. How are you? I'm doing amazing. I'm doing amazing. And uh, we got a great episode for you. We are joined by the Chief Operating Officer of the New York Cosmos, Eric Stover. Eric, thanks so much for joining us, and how's it going? Very good, and thanks for having me, guys. Our I'm pleasure. a little offended that it's taken 45 episodes for you to invite <laughs> me on, but uh, here we are. <laughs> Apologies. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to get you back on in the future, too. Um, uh, yeah, to thanks fair, so much for joining it's us. Taken about 40 before they invited me on the show so you know it's not very different <laughs> well you've we'll, made we'll it about that. five episodes so good that's, for you that's right that's right um we're glad you're on but you know it's going to be a fun one we have a wide range of things we want to talk to eric about so kj why don't you lead us off as always Sure, why don't we uh, jump right in, and Eric, I'm wondering if you could describe for our listeners just uh, that moment, hearing that, that small victory of being accepted into the 2018 Open Cup with the, the Cosmos B squad, so um, kind of talk about how you found out, were you present at a hearing, was it a phone call, was it a letter you received, um, just describe that moment when you found out that you will be playing in the 2018 U.S. Open Cup. Uh, I think it was mostly shock. Um, we haven't um, had too many things go our way lately um, in Cosmos country. Um, you know, first reaction was surprise that uh, the the committee had changed their mind. Um, and then, you know, it was relief for the fans. They've been through a lot. Um, so many, so many of them have stood by the, the ups and downs. We've had a lot of success, but um, we've also had a lot of have had a lot of challenges, um, and it's hard to stick through all of this nonsense, lawsuits and um, and the like, and still be folks for us in the cup, and hopefully we can make a deep. Uh, pull off a couple upsets then uh you know it'll be another great thing for them and i caught you on another podcast recently i can't remember uh which one but i believe you said you actually you started out in soccer your, your first opportunity with the club as a volunteer um and kind of just uh put in the blood sweat and tears and worked your way up to the top um so is that kind of how you got into it and uh, give us a little bit of your background in the game well it was really sports in general um I was I went to Florida State first couple of years of college, then transferred back home to Pennsylvania. Went to Penn State, finished there. Um, and while at at Penn State, I was an advertising major and, and knew I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to go, you know, work on Madison Avenue and um, be an account rep and do that for a living. So my passion was sport, and I I just got lucky. I got a non-paying internship at the Meadowlands. I was basically the first volunteer 
for the 96 men's final four at the Meadowlands um, and worked my way up through there 10 years at the Meadowlands. I grew up in rural Pennsylvania in the late 70s, early 80s. Nobody played soccer. Uh, no, nobody. <laughs> and up in Wingsport, Pennsylvania, which is the home of Little League Baseball. Uh, so baseball was king. Football and basketball was my basketball is my passion. Uh, so I didn't know anything about soccer. But working at the Meadowlands, um, I really learned to appreciate it, to love it. The Metro Stars uh, obviously played at Giant Stadium. And when I uh, became the stadium manager there um, at, at Giant Stadium, we started to do a lot of events. Um, Charles Tano was coming into his own with a company called Champions World at the time. He had left being GM of the Metro Stars. And everybody started coming through. Manchester United, Roma, with the English national team. Uh, so many Colombia-Ecuador games where the stadium was just packed. Um, and so I, I really started to appreciate it, to appreciate the sport and fall in love with it. And, you know, the big game changer for me was a goal scored by Ruud Van Nistelrooy. It was just amazing athleticism. And it just sort of, the light bulb went off that, you know, some of the greatest athletes in the world are playing soccer. Unlike, you know, in the United States, particularly at the time, um, it, football, baseball, basketball, king. And here we are, geez, 15 years later. And I, I don't know that that's the case anymore. I think soccer has really grown by leaps and bounds. And um, I've, lucky, I've been lucky to be a part of it the last 10 years of my career. I got to ask, which Ruud van Nistelrooy goal? Um, so it was a friendly. There's a lot of stories with the, that that match. So uh, I think it was Roma United. It was the first event Charlie put on. Um, and he's now obviously, you know, in the world with the Champions Cup and probably the most connected, most powerful soccer guy in the United States. If not one, he's two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so that that's an interesting story. Um, United had just done a transfer for Tim Howard. So Tim, Timmy was able to play the second half of that, of that match. And that was an interesting thing for me to see. Like I didn't understand any of this really yeah. at the time. Uh, transfer market versus trades in America uh, and, you know, getting to watch Tim play every day for the Metro stars. And then a couple of weeks later, he's, he's in goal for Manchester United. <laughs> we had sold, I think 40,000 tickets leading up to the day of game. And we did a 30,000 walk up. Wow. It was an insane 30,000 people walking up to cheese buy tickets at the, the box office people were still coming in into the second half. And then the goal was in my mind. I always remember it being further away from the net. Uh, and I found it on YouTube uh, a couple months ago. You there, Eric? Napoon down, yeah, chest down we... full. Can you hear me? 
Yeah, I think we lost you there for a second, Eric. Yeah, yeah, you're you're back. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure where you lost me, but uh, well, right so around, you said uh, anyway, you said you found it. You pulled it up on it YouTube. Down. Yeah, so I pulled it up on YouTube. Um, it you know you kind of remember things more <laughs> magnificent than than they actually actually were, but it's still a great goal and seventy thousand people went nuts. He chested the ball down off of and took a full volley and drilled it into the top corner, and it was just an incredible piece of athleticism and you know it was kind of a you know a life-changing moment for me and then you know a couple of years after that I, I go off to San Diego to to run Qualcomm Stadium and and one of the first things I wanted to do was bring soccer back to San Diego the last pro game they had there was the MLS all-star game which was a was a big failure and mm-hmm. you know led to uh, the change in the commissioner and Don Garber coming in. So it had been like six or seven years. And so, you know, using soccer and my connections in soccer through the Meadowlands that, you know, helped me do, do well in San Diego. We brought Mexico, Venezuela there. It was a huge success. And, you know, I think some folks back on the East coast noticed that. And I ended up getting a call from Red Bull about a year or so later. So, you know, it kind of pulled me in slowly, I guess. Yeah. And while you were at Red Bull, you had all kinds of successes. You were uh, named MLS Executive of the Year uh, 2011. Is that right? 2011, is that right? Uh, I think it was the end of 10. Okay. Yeah. Uh, But you achieved a lot during your time there. So um, I've always wondered um, what made you decide to leave uh, what was... I'm guessing a way more secure position in MLS with New York Red Bulls and roll the dice and join New York Cosmos, who were at that time uh, really an entity that had kicked the ball yet. I, I watched, I remember watching the uh, Paul Scholes testimonial, um, but you know, outside of that, New York Cosmos was still an idea. So what made you decide to roll the dice? Well, there was a little more time in between those two things. Uh, to be honest, um, not long after getting the Executive of the Year award, the folks in um, Austria said they wanted to do things a little differently. Mm-hmm. Um, they asked me to stay on. I said, uh, you know, I wasn't interested. I thought that they were making a massive mistake. Um, they wanted to restructure things. We had had a, a very good year. Um, in signing Thierry, building the stadium, uh, we had numerous um, friendly matches. We we brought in, let's see, we brought in Manchester City, Tottenham, Sporting, uh, the Czech Republic, and Turkey, and uh, geez, so many other. Um, Juventus came in. We had so many events. We were it was going very well and. Um, Ticket sales were, were up. We were close to 20,000 average. I think it was 19 and change. Um, and we were tracking well for 2011. Our season ticket sales went up the second year of a new stadium, which never happens. And so things were going well, and they wanted to change things, and I, I didn't agree. 
uh, I stuck around for five or six months. Um, we brought in the MLS all-star game with Manchester United. I wanted to see that through. And then, um, I left and they brought somebody new in. Um, and you know, that's, I think part of Red Bull's success now is, you know, the, the turnover has stopped for many, many years, mm-hmm. turnover in the front office, turnover, the coaching staff, turnover, the players, um, you know, it was just constant. Um, but the last few years, Mark de Grand Prix, who hired me at Red Bull, he hired me, um, he was the managing director and then he resigned suddenly. Um, and I was promoted into his position, but he's come back. He's doing a fantastic job. They have stability with Jesse Marsh. Um, and I, I don't think it's an accident that they're as successful as they are now. Um, but to, to answer the second part of your question, the, the Cosmos thing, um, it was a, it was a mess in the end of very end of 11, beginning of 12, uh, the Paul Kemsley era of, of the Cosmos was a lot of sizzle and no steak. Uh, mm-hmm. They burned through a lot of money without ever, as you say, kicking a ball, a, a meaningful game. Um, and so when Seamus came in, Seamus O'Brien came in, um, you know, it was at a pretty low point. There was only three employees, I think. Gio was one of them running the academy. Um, and you know, we had to rebuild it all. So, uh, we, we had a lot of ambition and a lot of dreams and a lot of belief that there was an opportunity and there was space for us to do something different. Um, but we had a long way to go from the middle of 2012 to, uh, playing in the NASL in 13. And you mentioned Thierry Henry, of course, uh, one of the more notable things you did was bring him to the Red Bulls. Could you kind of uh, walk us through that process? Was it a very lengthy courtship, or maybe it turned out to be a lot easier than you expected? Uh, yeah, it's a funny story. Um, so I knew who uh, Thierry was, but I, again, being completely transparent, I wasn't a big soccer fan. But if if I knew who he was, he fit into the caliber of the kind of guy that American soccer needed. Uh-huh. Uh, somebody that famous. Beckham was a, obviously the first example of that in the, you know, I guess they'd call it MLS 2.0. Um, and, you know, Red Bull building a $200 million stadium with their own money, you needed to put somebody that was going to spin the turnstiles on the field. Um and there was no bigger name um, in global soccer that was willing to come to the United States and play in, in MLS. Thierry at the time, when we started talking, was 30, I believe, and just was he- going into the year that Barcelona won, was it eight or nine trophies? Um, and so I like I said, I, I came in to Red Bull really to help build the stadium and uh, build out the staff a little more, uh, be a little more uh, professional in the operation of the team. Um, and, you know, a, a month or two into that, uh, Mark resigned and there was a, a leadership vacuum for a little while and I was promoted into the position. And, you know, you, you dream of being a, a team president. That's why I started in 
in this business. But, you know, I was in a sport that I didn't understand as well. I was still trying to get my feet under me with Red Bull. Um, and, you know, one of my first phone calls was to, was to Darren Dean, the Thierry's agent and um, son of David Dean, former um, executive and board member at Arsenal. Mm-hmm. And, and really the guy that helped create the Premier League as it is today. Um, and, you know, before I knew it, I was at the Four Seasons having breakfast with, with Darren. And, you know, <laughs> I, just, you know I said, no idea what I was talking about. And, um, we, you know, luckily, Darren's a good guy and he's uh, still a, a close, dear friend of mine. And we just spent two years talking about it. Um, what was it going to take? What were was Red Bull looking for? Uh, what was Thierry looking for? Um, it was made easy because Thierry really wanted to come to New York, um, you know, for the, the challenge that it is being a, a superstar, not totally by yourself, but compared to the teams he right. played on in Arsenal and Barcelona, when you're the guy, the only guy, and every media member wants to talk to you every day, um, you know, th- those were things that he had to get his head around. He had to get his head around playing in a college stadium against San Jose. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, he was starting in 2000, what was that, 2008? He's starting every game for a team that won every trophy. Right. Um, And and so at the end of eight, I I called Darren. I said, and the the European season, I said, I'm sure (laughs) – we're not talking about 2009 for Thierry. He said, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna wait one more year." Um, and he, you know, 2009 he starts playing every game, um, and then he got hurt. And I think it was Pedro that came in and kind of held down his spot when he came back from injury. Um, and at that point, uh, we knew it was probably over for him at Barcelona, um, and we were able to secure a free transfer barcelona still had him on the books they were still amortizing his transfer fee but uh you know at the time red bull was not interested in any kind of paying any kind of transfer fees and we negotiated a good deal and one thing that was what important was it for, was uh tishi bergestein uh bergestein at barcelona at this time or was it someone else who was dealing with uh so i dealt with uh not Laporta um it's another Joan I can't remember his last name now he was the CFO I got um and yeah so I think from a player personnel thing first of all Darren handled most of the uh cheeky stuff and um and you know they were ready to move on as far as on the field Pep and, and, and the team, they were ready to, to move on. So it was really about numbers and, and not so much about um, player personnel. So so you're at... Uh... And so... So did I lose you again? Hello? No, no, no. Sorry. I, th- I thought you, you, were, you were still saying something. Oh, like sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I was just uh, saying one of the one of the things that was important to Red Bull was having Thierry not only on the team, but representing the the beverage. So 
you know, he had to, he had a big Pepsi deal at the time. So we had to sort that out. Um, so it was long convoluted, a lot of lawyers. Um, (laughs) yeah, a lot of, you know, it was a a big deal. It was a multi-year deal. Um, and you know, you had to have insurance people involved. It was complicated and, um, you know, it was nerve wracking at times, but we, we finally got him in. I think we did a nice job of introducing him. Um, the, you know, it worked out so perfectly. We had the, an event that I organized the Barclays New York challenge. So we brought in Tottenham sporting in Manchester city so Thierry's first game with the the Red Bulls, he's playing against Tottenham, his old nemesis, and he scored. And um, you know, it was a really special moment after two years of work. So Eric, you signed Henri, but you also signed a bunch of other really, really good players uh, while you were at New York Cosmos. For example, Raúl uh, is is the one that I obviously pops out in my head because. Um, it's because of Cosmos that I got to meet Raul. So obviously that's huge for me personally. But you signed a, a lot of fantastic players while you were near Cosmos. So can you, before we start talking about Cosmos per se, and that'll probably be the focus of the rest of our show, can you tell me what was your favorite player transfer that you ever completed? Was it Henri? Was it Raul? Was it someone else? Well, for Raul, the, the credit really goes to Gio. Uh, same thing with Marco Senna. Um, with both of those guys, my role was more with uh, convincing the board and the owners to to make the investment, keeping in mind that what we played paid Marcos was a fraction of what he was making the year before with uh, Villarreal. And then the same thing with, with Raul. What we paid Raul didn't cover his rent in New York city. Um, despite what the reputation of the cosmos is, um, we actually negotiated a lot of, uh, very good deals and geo deserves the credit there for me personally. I would say number one, excuse me, is, uh, is gotta be Thierry, just the amount of time that went into it and how important I think he, he was to the league at that time. I think he was, his signing was critical. And if we didn't pull that off, uh, I think it would have been a blow to to MLS as a whole, not just Red Bull. Um, and then, honestly, I think Carlos Mendez is is right after that. So Carlos was a real leader and a and a great guy. Played for me at Red Bull. Um, well, not for me, but I was at Red Bull when he was playing there. Um, and Shep Messing called and said, "You know, Carlos is out of contract with Columbus and." You know, he's a Long Island guy. Maybe you guys should consider him to be, you know, to sign. And I called Gio right away. So we, you know, this Carlos is perfect. He's exactly the kind of player we we want. An MLS caliber starter um, that is representative of New York. And Gio loved the idea, too. And um Carlos didn't have an agent, so Gio and I managed that negotiation directly with him. Um, and I think it was a really big deal for us to get a guy like that, a guy that the first player you sign in a startup team it ends up being your captain for five years, and now he's the head coach of the B team. Um, while 
where we are now in, in 2018 isn't exactly what we expected. We did expect that Carlos would be part of the family forever. Um, and so I, I do feel good about um, following through on our word with him. What I'm wondering about, Eric, is in your half decade at New York Cosmos, you've seen some incredible highs and some incredible lows to, to use a bit, you know, use a cliche. You've seen some fantastic on-pitch performances. You've seen multiple NASL trophies. You've, as we've talked about, you've signed some remarkable players that, uh, or been at least been a part of the signing of some remarkable world-class players. Oops, that's my dog barking. Uh, prob- <laughs> probably at the storm outside. Um, um, but at the same time, you've experienced some real lows with, with everything that happened a year and a half ago with Cosmos, everything that happened last year, everything that happened this year. So there's been a lot of analysis of it from lots of people on Twitter, people blogging, people doing podcasts, whatever it is. What has it been for you, Eric, uh, as a person, as an employee, um, as someone that has walked away from all of this with uh, largely a unanimous amount of credit, what has it been like for you uh, having experienced all these uh, these moments? Uh, it's, it's been very difficult because there's a lot of good people that still should be employed and still should be working towards building this club back up to what it should be. Um, and that opportunity's in, in a large part been taken from us. I think um, Rocco Camiso is an absolutely incredible owner. Um, there isn't a guy, and I've been in the sports business for 22 years now. I've worked in the NFL. I've worked with NBA, NHL teams. I've seen a lot. Both cares more about his sport than Rocco does. Um, and he came into this trying to save his team, and he he will tell you that he got assurances that he'd have a chance to do that and to, to save the league. So I think it's horribly unfair what's happened. I think people went back on their word. Uh, it's not in the best interest of soccer in this country for what's happened to the NASL. And a lot of people want to point to mistakes that the NASL made. Uh, and there are some mistakes And you know, Rishi and I'm sure you guys have talked to Rishi before and, he will readily admit some of those mistakes that the leagues and the clubs have made. But most of the things that people will point to, like bringing Oklahoma in, not that those guys in Oklahoma were bad guys, just that it, they didn't have a long-term plan that was sustainable enough for what we needed at the time. But that, that club was on shaky ground because the league was on shaky ground, and the league was on shaky ground because we lost – San Antonio, and then Tampa and Ottawa and Minnesota. And, you know, that there's a lot of stuff that I believe that's gone on around those things that destabilized that league that none of us could have done anything about. Um, and the sport in this country really shouldn't be about those things, about teams being poached out of leagues. Um, and so, Eric, for since, since we are, since we are here... Like that. Since, since we are here, I mean, I, I was very interested yep. in learn, hearing more about your personal experience. But, uh, but since we are here, how do you, how do you address the, the obvious counterpoint, which 
I have brought up to you and everyone brings up on soccer Twitter that is there evidence? Is there evidence for this, for what you're saying? Because if what you're saying is true, you know, that, that's, a, that's a massive, massive issue for, for U.S. soccer. Yet we, we right. haven't been providing right. so, evidence for well, it. That, that's the, right. Well, I, I wouldn't say right that there hasn't been evidence. Um, let's just, let's take, I'll come back to San Antonio in a second. Sure. Um, and I did mean to uh, go off on a tangent about my personal experiences. So if you want to come back and talk about that, we can. But sure. um, let's just talk about the first hearing in the first in the antitrust lawsuit, the the court in Brooklyn. The attorneys for U.S. Soccer admit in court that they were told by. Uh, North Carolina, that North Carolina was not going to be in the NASL anymore. And that, so that was said on the record in court. And nobody uh, with the NASL knew that. So going into submitting our application, nobody in the NASL knew that Carolina was leaving. But U.S. soccer knew they were leaving. That doesn't that that doesn't look good for anybody involved. How is that possible that we're going in saying we have eight teams, we have these other teams that are on the cusp of uh, expanding, enjoy coming into our league. They're good markets with good owners, but we need more time, a longer runway. We obviously went through a lot at the end of sixteen. Give us some more time, and we'll get this league back up to 12 and 14 teams and here's the thought process behind it but then the people sitting across from Rishi and Rocco and whoever else was in the room have been told that one of those eight teams is leaving and that's not anything we put out in in the Twitter sphere that was said in court by U.S. soccer attorneys and and that's part of the frustration that people have with North Carolina and, and what's happened when you roll back with San Antonio, with Tampa, with Ottawa, with Minnesota. Uh, so, and none uh, of that Eric, if I'm to, sorry, go ahead. Sure. I was just going to say none of that needs to happen for the growth of the sport and for players to have good jobs and for there to be a functional pyramid and for players to have a chance to develop, for owners to have a chance to build a business, for people to have jobs, having that level of instability uh, in other leagues is just not good. And I can't see for the life of me how in the mission statement of U.S. soccer that your job number one is to, is to grow the sport, how not interceding and, and helping um, a league grow and stay stable and uh, preventing these things from happening, um, how you could just stand by and watch it. If that is only what they did, you just stood by and watch it, it, it seems to be, a, you know, against their responsibilities. So, I'm oh, sorry, KJ, go ahead. I've been asking way too many questions here. Oh, okay, we had a couple of Twitter questions for you, Eric, from some Cosmos fans that we'll jump on out to. This one is from Patrick Inferna. He asks, the NPSL team that the Cosmos 
is building is clearly more than what the league is used to as far as quality and payroll. Players like Wojciech, Vucic, and Barajo are a caliber that could easily have gone slash stayed in USL. And is there a plan for after July to help keep these players around? Uh, good question. And Patrick's a great guy. So yeah, shout out is. to Patrick. Fantastic, fantastic <laughs> um, videographer. His, his work with Go90 has yeah, been absolutely good awesome. Good guy and, and loves the team. Um, yeah, so what 2019 is, we don't know yet. Um, and I know people are tired of hearing it. I'm tired of saying it. Um, but what we need is a league to play in. I, I think we've we have an owner that certainly has the resources and the, the willingness to play. I think the big challenge is a year ago at this time, he was given assurances that he would have a chance to uh, build up a league, build up his team. He spent a lot of money doing it, including propping up other teams within the league, uh, at least in the short term. Jacksonville um, is, is still around because people like Rocco and R- Ricardo Silva uh, helped keep that team going for a while. Um, so there's an awful lot of investment without any assurances from the Federation that they'll get a fair fair chance. So what league exists next year that, um, that can have the Cosmos in it and uh, get a fair shake with professional league standards on, on what league it's in and, and that there is a pathway to sustainability. Those are all really huge questions. Leave aside lawsuits for a second. Um, there, the, this group of independent owners is, is disorganized at the moment because there, there is not a dialogue with the Federation that shows a pathway for a stable league that five years from now that league is still going to exist. Ten years from now that league is still going to exist. And so I think what Rocco in particular needs is some open dialogue and he's not going to spend dollars for no reason. Um, that his team is still going to be around and he's going to have a, a, an open and fair opportunity and this question is from tim pickerel on twitter he wants to know is there any possibility that you and rocco could decide to help build a new league or pyramid structure uh, by joining a league like nisa yeah uh tim's also a great guy um uh yeah absolutely rocco would if he if we could if the independent soccer owners could come together and say, this is our plan and this, this is where we're taking it. Um, are you on board? I, I'm sure he would do that. But again, it goes back to my previous answer to what end is it sanctioned? Is there going to be a fair opportunity, uh, a belief that as you invest in your sport, that you're building something, um, you know, a big part of the current success of MLS is the appreciation of the assets that people have, invested in right and that there's been millions of dollars that have gone in the cosmos to to try to help build a independent league that's global uh, economy and, and transfers and how the rest of the world works 
but there have been forces outside of the, the cosmos that have made that asset uh, depreciate or certainly not um, appreciate in any value uh, commensurate with the amount of money that's been spent on it. So uh, it, if we can get everybody together to form a league that has some long-term viability, then sure, the Cosmos want to be in it, no doubt. Uh, but there's been a lot, lot of talk right now with not enough action and, and certainly not enough action out of the Federation. So in other words, I, I, from your perspective, unless the, the uh, PLS uh, standards are struck down uh, and, USS, and you guys have a better understanding of what USSF is going to do, um, you find, would it be fair to say that it's difficult to see New York Cosmos playing in a league next year? Well, no, I, I, you know, it's not my place to talk about the legal ramifications of pro league standards. What, I, what I'm saying is whatever place, whether there's none or exactly the same things that are in place, that there is going to be cooperation from the Federation to help the league be successful. And, you know, I've been in this league, not in the, not in the league office, mm-hmm. managing a team. My job's been trying to manage this team and all the challenges that came with it. Um, but to my knowledge, there was never any real effort out of the Federation to help the NASL, that it was very much a hands-off approach. Um, we never were able to, to, again, to my knowledge, have a senior person at U.S. soccer come in and meet with prospective, uh, expansion candidates, um, to help the league grow, to help the league stabilize, to help the league with TV deals, to help the league with media deals and coverage. Um, there was really no effort whatsoever uh, to help the NESL exist five, ten years down the road. And in fact, um, there's accusations that the opposite has taken place. Well, whether that stuff is true, that's what the court cases are about. People have a chance to make their arguments on both sides, and we'll see what comes out of it. But there was no. There was a lot of money spent on the NASL, and all of it with the goal of growing clubs and, and creating opportunities. And for now, that stuff is all on hi, uh, all on hiatus, put off to the side. And uh, I don't know what 2019 is going to bring. Eric, what would you say to the the counter argument that uh, while you're while you're correct? Um, that the USSF has kind of had a hands-off approach, that's really what NASL wanted, was USSF to not interfere in their, uh, in their business and do what they had to do as long as they were meeting standards. Um, isn't that what NASL wanted? Isn't that what NASL spit away? No, I, I, don't think that's a, I don't think that's an accurate statement. Okay. I think the way it was could be misinterpreted was that the NASL was upset that there was an effort to move the goalposts and change standards in 2000. uh, What people really need to understand was 2008, 2007 um, second division soccer. Nobody knew anything about any of the teams there. You like the, the idea that you could have an Indy 11 
and the success that's happening in Indy or Cincinnati or, you know, the, the moments of success at the Cosmos Miami have had, um, like none of that existed as I'm managing director at Red Bull and, um, the, the concept of the open cup and, and playing these teams that were barely held together with gum and spit and duct tape. Hmm. Um, <laughs> it to where it is now is incredible. I mean, just the websites, the, the information, the, the professional standards that all the teams have now is a dramatic increase in 10 years, dramatic. Um, so the opportunity is, is there. What, the NASL's biggest complaint was in 2014, 2015, the league was very close to first division status. Right. There was stadium issue, I think, across the league. Um, there weren't enough teams that, that uh, would have had the stadium requirements. I'm not sure. There may have been one or two other waivers, but, you know, this year, 2018, I don't know how many waivers the USL is getting for second division status, but it was a lot more. It's a lot more than what the NASL needed for first division status in 2014. And then from 2014 to where we are now, that there's a lot of change there. And I personally think that it that it happened starting with San Antonio and that team, because you got to remember. 2000, the end of 15, when San Antonio went to the USL, they relegated themselves. They right. went down to third division. Who self relegates? <laughs> nobody. Who who takes five years of building your intellectual property, building your logo, your brand name, your color scheme, your concepts, everything about your team? You do five years of that, and then you throw it all out and relegate yourself. Um. All of that's happening while, you know, there's a deal in place already in 2015, two years prior, for Columbus to move the team to Austin. Whatever happened in in San Antonio and Austin, there's a lot to be discovered, a lot to be discussed there. Um, and that was the beginning of the slide of the NASL. And the, all the momentum before that was positive. Everything... It, we had six, seven markets at the table for expansion. Uh, a lot of very good ownership groups, a lot of European clubs that liked the business model of low entry fee um, and an opportunity to help develop players, maybe for their bigger club in Europe. There were a lot of conversations like that going on. Um, and then to look at where it is now, um, it's not a case of the NASL constantly shooting itself in the foot. At least that's not my opinion. Was there a particular candidate that you would have liked to have seen win the USSF presidential election? And what was your, what were your overall thoughts on uh, Carlos Codero winning? Um, well, we, we as a league backed um, Eric Winalda and, um, I got to know Eric better over the six-month process or so. I, I found him to be very intelligent on the issues. Didn't agree with everything um, that he said, but nobody agrees with everybody on everything. But I, I came away from our interactions impressed with 
with Eric, uh, and I think he would have done a good job. I think, and I told him this after he lost, we had a, a little sit down. There's about a dozen of us standing there talking about what happened. And, and I said, Eric, even if you got this job, you would have been lucky to get the head coach hired uh, because the way everything is structured um, to be an outsider on that board without being able to change many of the board positions and the, how the weighted voting works, that he, he would have had to spend all of his political capital and all of his effort just to get his guy into coaching the men's national team. Forget about promotion relegation or anything else. Um, so my opinion is that the, the president's position, uh, it was always going to be either Kathy Carter or Carlos Cordero. The weighted voting system um, made it almost impossible. You really needed one outside candidate that galvanized all of the um, change sentiment throughout all of soccer, anybody that had, that was a delegate that had to vote. So you couldn't have six people. It was over the moment that it, it went past one. Um, and if they all could have come together and said, we're going to throw our weight behind one person, then they, they would have had a chance. That one person would have had a chance. Um, I also have gotten to know Kyle Martino a little bit. Uh, I've been impressed with Kyle, not, um, during the campaign, not to say I wasn't impressed with him, but that he's sticking with his issues after the campaign. That mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's become chairman of the board of a of Street Soccer USA, which is a organ charity organization very near and dear to my heart. Um, and you know, he's following through on some of the things he said about pay to play and youth development. Um, critique of the financial structure of the sport in this country. Uh, so he hasn't, you know, it, it, it just wasn't a brand building thing for him. Um, I, I think he's a, a voice of reason, a voice, I don't want to say of dissent because that sounds negative, but it, you know, it's, it's different than what the mainstream soccer media puts out there. So I've also been in, impressed with Kyle and how he's conducted himself the last few months. Um, and then as, as far as Carlos goes, my interpretation right now, and everybody deserves uh, a chance to, to do the job first, but it seems to me to be just shuffling the deck of the same set of cards that, that we had. Um, and, you know, I, we haven't heard or seen much out of Car- Carlos since he got the job. Um, in fact, uh, you know, in, in, you know, I'm on the host committee for MetLife Stadium and very much would like to see the World Cup here in 2026. And I think it's important for the sport and for the economy of the United States to have it and Canada and Mexico. Uh, but what we've seen out of 2026 is a lot of negative news the last few months. Um, and I am concerned about that. So, um, you know, Carlos deserves his chance, but... And he was on the board for however many years. He was in charge of finance. He signed off on all these, on all these deals. He would have had to. Um, he would have had to sign off on the unequal pay for the women and unequal per diem pay for the women and for 
the head coach to be paid what she's paid compared to executives in in um, Chicago. And so um, there's a lot of things that he he tried to distance himself from. Um, you know, if if he's going to follow through on fixing some of those things, then great for the sport. Um, but I'm not too optimistic at this point. And to hop back over to RBNY real quick, the Red Bulls, their academy has kind of become the gold standard as far as player development um, and even playing youth on the first team as well. Um, could you just talk about the, the, the culture ingrained there and, and that philosophy that is ingrained into the Red Bulls of developing the youth um, at all levels? Well, I think it's uh, it's really starting to bear fruit. I saw Dave Jervis at an event the other day. Dave is in charge of the camps and clinics and regional development schools, kind of the, the feeder system into the academy. And I was so happy for him and so proud of him. So when I took over at, at Red Bull as the managing director, uh, we uh, market brought Dave and his crew in in house. They were a third party representing Red Bull uh, in in camps and clinics, and, and so there was a, a lawsuit over that transaction, and and we settled it. And I got to know Dave through that process, and talked to him a lot about the vision of the the program. And at the end of the day, it was about identifying players for the academy. And we were talking about it at you know this is going back almost ten years now, and. Um, we were talking about that success and I said, so you guys are still really doing well with, uh, helping identify players for the Academy. And, and he just got a big smile on his face and he was talking about Tyler Adams. He has a photo of Tyler Adams when he was like 10 years old at a regional <laughs> development school. You know, it's like a supplemental training thing where you leave your club, go, go train here and there and then go back to your club and and now he's on the U.S. national team. Um, so they are the, the shining example of how it's supposed to be done in the United States. It makes sense for them um, because they're part of a global soccer brand with Salzburg and Leipzig. And what Leipzig's done is unbelievable. Uh, so it makes sense for them to have that investment. And they carry that culture throughout the system of playing young guys. I think it's really important. Um for the growth of the sport, but it also points to how it doesn't work well here in the United States. There's, there's no solidarity payments. There's no transfer market to speak of. And for a lot of teams that are, are investing a lot of money in their academy, they're not seeing a return on that investment. And they're rolling back some of that investment. Um, and, you know, I think because of that, Red Bull is going to stay at the, the top of that pyramid for a long time because, They've been doing it for a long time. They got a lot of really good people there, and they're and it's really starting to feed itself and 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 spit out some really good players. Napoon, you got any final thoughts before we let Eric get out of here? Oh, did we lose Napoon? <laughs> oh, sorry, I, I was I was uh, I muted myself because my dogs were barking. Sorry about that. Yeah, so I, I, I thought I put you to sleep, Nipun. No, sorry, I, I was talking and then I realized I was I was muted. So, um, couple of I have two questions for Eric before we go. One, Eric, what is 
What is uh, something you would like to see change from your perspective to to move the sport of soccer forward? The the most the most pressing thing you'd like to see change, uh, you know, imminently. The transfer market. The fact that there's not a transfer market at all in this country um, depresses everything. Um, it it necessitates pay to play. So if you're not getting any solidarity payments, if you're not getting any developmental fees, you got to make money somehow. You can't expect a club to to be, you know, totally self-funded and to lose hundreds of thousands of dollars a year so kids can play the game and practice and, and get better. Um, and without a system where um, money flows down from the top to the grassroots to help subsidize it, kids and parents are going to have to pay to play. And then that forces kids that can't afford it to not be able to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I think organizations like Street Soccer USA are so important um, because it is a charity and it's giving kids opportunities to play. Uh, but really all of that is driven off the transfer market. And if the top tier is not paying the, the second tier a fair market value for, for players moving up the system and, and two isn't paying three and three isn't paying um, academies, broken and right. the the biggest problem when i got into the sport 10 years ago managing uh red bull was players 16 17 18 19 20 there's a, a major developmental gap in the united states compared to the rest of the world and that is still the case there are examples that like red bull that are doing it much better 10 years down the road but it's still better off for most 16 year old kids that if they have a European passport to get into Europe, um, there are examples in the United States where, where you can do it very successfully. Um, but I think the biggest issue is this developmental pyramid is fractured along the way. It's been that way for a long time. And the main reason is there's not uh, transfer pain. It's some money trickling down to the bottom of the pyramid. So that for me, that's number one. Okay. Uh, and that's, I think, I think almost everybody listening will agree with you on that one. Um, Eric, I want to end, first of all, thank you for joining us. I want to end on a more personal note. Um, like I've said, like I said earlier, I think there are a lot of people, I, I count myself in this, who uh, are troubled by some things that have happened at New York Cosmos some things that have happened with NASL. Um, but I think you're one of the only folks that walks away largely appreciated by everyone for how you conducted yourself, especially uh, a year, well, I guess a year and four months ago when things were going south at, at Cosmos in December 2016. So I want to ask you, Eric, as my final question, what's, what's next for you uh, on a personal level um, obviously the situation at Cosmos is complicated. So what's, what's next for you? Uh, oh, well, first of all, thank you for saying that it, it has been a, a very difficult couple of years. Um, and all credit to Rocco for putting as much effort into, uh, trying to save this team and, and still being committed to, 
uh, a future. Who knows what that future is going to be? But, um, you know, he, he came in and saved the day. And there were a lot of people not being paid. Um, and that was very, very difficult. So, um, you know, he all the credit in the world goes to him. Um, for for us, you know, we've got to continue to build this team. Um, it'll be a team better than most NPSL teams. I think it's just how it's structured. But we're not we're not spending a million dollars on an NPSL roster. We've signed um, a few guys that were on the team before, on the Cosmos first team before, uh, as we try to look after our own. Uh, we've signed a couple other guys that um, couldn't get a reasonable deal out of the USL um, and are trying to buy time to try to get another contract somewhere else. Uh, so we've got, I think, six or seven guys on the roster that we're paying a little bit of money to. Um, but the, we're going to announce a bunch of guys um, on Thursday, um, another six guys to the roster, and those are all amateur players. And we'll build out most of the roster with, with amateur guys. Um, and, you know, we got to try to be successful and live the dream of, of the cup and upset some teams and see how far we can go. And then for me personally, it's, you know, we, we all take everything one day at a time, right? <laughs> so, sure. Um, it'd be nice to, to not worry about what, uh, if my team is going to exist in two months time, but we've been in this boat for three years now. Um, there's things I would have done differently back at the end of 15, beginning of 16, had I known that we were running into the financial problems we were running into. Uh, so I feel bad about that. But, um, you know, really, it's, it's try not to, to focus too much on the negative. Um, do what I can to help folks that are looking for new jobs. And we'll see what happens for me. Well, that is our show. I want to send a big thank you to our panel, my co-host, Nipun Chopra. You can find him on Twitter at Nipun Chopra 7 To our guest today, Chief Operating Officer of the New York Cosmos, Eric Stover. You can find him on Twitter at Eric Stover NYC. I'm your host, Kevin Johnston. You can find me at KJ Boxing on Twitter. And just want to remind you guys the best way to support our show. If you love the Sock Takes pod, hop over to patreon.com slash socktakes and put a pledge in. That is the number one way to support the show. Thank you to all of our existing patrons. Also, thank you to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, official scarf supplier of MLS, USL, and US Soccer. Get custom scarves for your group or team at roughneckscarves.com. This has been episode 45. We'll probably crank out another episode for you next week, so check that out. Until then, we bid you farewell. <laughs>